All right, welcome everyone to the second week of our series, 10 weeks worth of Marriage Matters. And you see the subtitle both on the screen and on the front cover of the notes that you should all have. And that is Extraordinary Change Through Ordinary Moments. Now, does everybody have a copy of the notes? If not, John has some here. And the notes that they're distributing are for session two. We did session one last week, and we have separate notes for each of the ten weeks. Rather than the whole notebook, I gave the reason why we're not doing the whole notebook at the beginning. It's because everybody forgets their notebook. And and if you're here just one time, then you probably don't want a whole notebook anyway. But at the end of the series, if you want them all together, we'll be happy to give that to you. And we put three-hole punch on these so that if you want to keep them week to week in a notebook of your own, then that'll help you to do that. So this is session number two. And before we get into session number two, I just wanted to mention a couple of announcements. This is the Marriage Matters class, and there is another class going on right now. And that other class is How We Got Our Bible. So it is the origin of the Bible in its Old uh, in its uh, Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts, the preservation of the Bible. Dr. William Combs, who's a member of our church and an expert in that uh, that issue, taught it for 30 years on the seminary level. He's teaching across the hallway out that back door in Adult One. So if that's the class you want to be in, it won't hurt my feelings. This is the marriage class, but we have that one going on for those that are not interested in the uh, marriage class. Two weeks from today, we have our next baptism. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, if you have never been baptized, then Christ commands that of you. And baptized means that you're immersed in water. That's literally what the word means in the New Testament. If you've never been immersed and thus baptized, then you've not been baptized as the Bible describes. And as I say, that's something Christ commands. So you need to see me today. That's in two weeks if you want to meet together and learn more about what qualifies one to be baptized. So I bring it up for that reason. Here's the other reason. That for all of our baptisms, we have a celebration dinner right after the folks are baptized. And for that dinner, we need food. And for the food, we count on you for a part of that. So we have a sign-up sheet for the baptism dinner that's going to be floated around. Uh, and I think we have we have four of those? All right. So we're trying to make it easier than we did for the uh, hayride food. We've got four sections, and there are four clipboards. And they're starting at the back. So it, when the clipboard comes to you, if you're on an end, you pass it to the row in front of you. You don't put it behind you. You don't put it on the floor. You don't do any of that. You pass it to the, to the uh, row in front of you. And then each section, it will wind up in the front row of that section. So Lorraine is going to have end up with the clipboard over here. And then Tony and Andrea are going to end up with it over here. And Paul over here and Glenn and Kim over here. Okay, So I've just called you guys out. You're responsible now for those uh, clipboards. And if you'll affix your name to a, a, a food that you can bring, that would be great. And if you can't do that, of course, that's fine. Just pass it to the person next to you. Last announcement is this. November the 21st, Saturday, November 21st, is our next Newcomers Brunch. And as the name suggests, it is for newcomers, those of you that are new to our church. We would like to get to know you better. So my wife and I, periodically throughout the year, have folks to our house for brunch. Saturday morning, the 21st, 10 a.m. to about noon, There's no program, no agenda other than just having you over to enjoy each other's company. But we do need to know who all is coming. So if you would let us know that by telling the folks at the information center, then they will put your name on the list and we'll look forward to to having you at our house. Okay, that's Saturday, November 21st. All right. Second session of Marriage Matters. And in our first session, I said that. 
The purpose for marriage is for each to help the other become more like Christ. The purpose for marriage is for each of us to help each other become more like Christ. To put it more broadly, beyond marriage, relationship is for discipleship. So that's a way for you to think about, me to think about all of our relationships. They are for the purpose of making the individual with whom I have the relationship better. And making the individual better ultimately means assisting them in the process of becoming more more like Christ. Now, there's a lot of background to that statement. I gave some of that last week, and I'm not going to repeat that for the sake of those that were here. Those of you that were not here, we record all of our messages, so those are that's available to you at our website, and I encourage you to listen to it. But part of the backstory to a statement like that, that marriage is for the purpose of each helping the other to become more like Christ, is the fact that marriage is God's idea. That marriage originated with God. And that God gave marriage for the purpose of providing a means by which male and female will achieve their purpose, the purpose for which he made them. That purpose is given in, given in the opening chapters of the Bible, uh, chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 15. If you care to jot that down, Genesis 2.15 gives the purpose for which God made mankind. And that purpose is a worship purpose. So in order for us to worship God as we were intended, then God made us to be in his image, to reflect him back to him. And Christ is the one who's the perfect image of God. And so when I say marriage is for the purpose of helping one another become more like Christ, in a nutshell, that means marriage is a means that God has given for us to achieve the purpose for which he made us. Now, let me add another statement to that though. Our marriages could be saved if at least one partner had an affair with someone else. I probably should have warned you before I said that, shouldn't I? It's intended to be provocative, but I want to explain what I mean. Our marriages could be saved if at least one partner had an affair with someone else. And the reason I say that is because of what The title of session two is top of page eight. You see in your notes there, a third person in your marriage. And it probably will not surprise you to learn who that third person is to be. That third person is to be the God who gave marriage and who then gave marriage for the purpose that I have outlined both last week and now again today. And so when I say our marriages could be saved if at least one partner had an affair with someone else, I'm talking about a relationship with God. And this third person that needs to be prominent in our marriages is none other than God. Marriage, like all things, has as its ultimate purpose God and the glory of God. And marriage is made for us to help one another become like Christ. Now, if you care to jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. And I'll read it for you. Paul, who wrote this, and wrote this to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth, and thus the name of the book, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, says to them, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, 
so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now notice the language there. I have betrothed you. I have promised you. I have given you to one husband, ultimately to Christ. And the end game here in what I'm writing to you about, he will say in that book, the end game is for you to be presented as pure and holy before him. And it therefore should not surprise us that in places like Ephesians 5, and as I just rattle these off, if you care to jot them down, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25 in your New Testament, the Bible instructs husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it gives the purpose for which Christ gave himself up for the church to present her as a radiant bride, spotless and without wrinkle. So the holiness of the church, the holiness of God's people is the reason for which Christ came and sacrificed himself. And the Bible is saying, likewise, husbands, you need to be in the business of sacrificing yourself, loving your wives by doing what is in their best interest. That was the definition we gave last week. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. And here's the purpose so that the church would be holy. So God in his word, the God who gave marriage, uses this kind of language that that I am to be the central person and the central objective in in your marriage. And that's why I title this then a third person in your marriage. And that's why I say our marriages could be saved if at least one partner had an affair with someone else. The other partner may remain a scoundrel. The other partner may not be willing to cooperate. The other partner may be sitting next to you right now and you're wondering to yourself, is she ever going to get her act together? Is he ever going to listen to something the pastor says? He's been in here for years and nothing changes. And so then you begin to focus upon your change project and your change project becomes changing him or her rather than you changing because you are betrothed to God, this third person in your marriage. And I will tell you from hard experience and counseling folks that the more you focus on changing your spouse, the worse things become, the more they resist. The thing you must do is focus upon not first changing him or her, but first you changing through your relationship with Christ. And then I have seen many, many times, not always, because you can't control the other party, nor can I, but many times I've seen that have great effect upon the other party who prior to that was not interested in changing. I heard a story years ago about a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, and, you know, if you went through that and you had a formal wedding, there's just all kinds of details and all the stuff you've got to remember. And when do I come down the aisle? And what do I have to say? And, you know, what if I drop the bouquet? And what if we forget the ring? And all the things you're thinking about. And so the pastor who was leading it tried to set the bride's uh, mind at ease by telling her, look, uh, you're going to uh, stand at the back of the, at the aisle. And then the organist will be playing a song, and she will change key. 
And then we will sing a hymn, and that's when you come forward. So you'll be at the back of the aisle. There'll be a change in the key on the organ, and then we'll sing a hymn. And she just tried to remember that. She just said the aisle. The aisle, if I can remember that. Be at the aisle. And then the and then there'll be this change. Aisle and change. And then they're going to sing a hymn. And she just kept saying that to herself from the back. Aisle, change, hymn. And as she was walking toward the front, she's just saying, I'll change him. Now, she's saying that to try to remember. But the truth is, there's been many a wedding that's resulted in a marriage where she has said or he has said, I'll change him or her. And what I'm calling you to, friends, more importantly, what God is calling you to is the change that he provides when we focus ourselves on our relationship with him, this third person in your marriage. So page eight, top of page eight. Last week, we learned that your relationship with your spouse is a window into your relationship with God. Because how you love your spouse reflects how obedient and committed you are to Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself. Any marriage can be transformed if we commit to love our spouses as Jesus commanded us. Because then we're part of God's agenda and we make God visible. That's what the Bible actually says, is that this is how God is made known to others. He is made known when we love others as Christ loved us. So then we become part of God's agenda and we make God visible. So what prevents that from happening? What keeps you from loving your spouse as you ought? And the answer is this, that you've brought another unhealthy relationship into the marriage. So I'm saying there needs to be this other relationship. And if there is this other affair, then most of our marriages can be saved if that's taking place by at least one party. But very often that other relationship is indeed there, but it's an unhealthy relationship. To put it another way, you've already brought a relationship with God into your marriage. Did you know that? We're going to see that there's no way for any human being to get away from his or her relationship with God. You were made for God. And you are always transacting with God, whether you acknowledge it or know it or want it. You are. So you're bringing that relationship into your marriage relationship. The question is, is it healthy or not? Your relationship with God. And so I say on page 8, every marriage involves three persons. And I say that because this, this is because God is involved in every relationship. Now, there are a lot of ways to show this in Scripture, but one way is this. If you care to jot down Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, Psalm 51, 1 through 4. And Psalm 51 is one of 150 psalms in the book by that name, most of them written by King David, this one uh, as well, Psalm 51. But this one is unique in that it was written after David is confronted by heinous sin that he had committed. And if you know the story of David's life, you know that he fell into adultery. And as the king, he could not be found out as having committed adultery. And so he worked to cover up his sin. And that cover-up included having the husband of the woman with whom he had the affair killed in battle. So David became an adulterer and a murderer. He thought he had covered it up that no one would know. And then God showed his sin to a man named Nathan. The Bible records that the prophet Nathan confronted David 
with this sin. David was cut to the heart, convicted, and he writes Psalm 51 in the aftermath of that. If you were to look at Psalm 51 at the top, the superscription says, this is a Psalm of David after the prophet Nathan confronted him with the sin. In verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 51, if you get an opportunity to read those, you, you should note all of the personal pronouns in, in those four verses where David says, I and me and my over and over again. He's confessing his sin before God. And then notice how many times God is used in those four verses. And David is saying that even though I have sinned against Bathsheba, the woman with whom I had the affair, even though I have sinned against my own family, even though I sinned against the nation because I am their king, even though there are all of these people on the horizontal level that I've sinned against, ultimately the one against whom I have sinned is you, God. This is about me and you. And the reason he can say that is because God is involved in every relationship. There are a lot of applications of that. Beyond marriage, <laughs> there's that relationship you have at work that you hate. I didn't say there's that person at work you hate, although I probably could. And the way I need to look at relationships, the way you need to look at relationships, and especially your marriage relationships, is that this relationship is a divine appointment from God in order for me to become closer to Him and reflect Him in the midst of this circumstance that is this relationship. God is involved in every relationship. Now, to understand this, I say in your notes, we must lose the idea that so many of us have that God is only concerned with select areas of our lives. We're accustomed to separating life into the spiritual and the unspiritual, handing spiritual things over to God and managing the rest by ourselves. Marriage may be one of those areas that we like to manage on our own. So let's stop and consider, have you had that compartmentalized view of life? Do you know what I mean when I say compartmentalized? That we live life in compartments. So you've got your work compartment, you've got your leisure compartment, you've got your finance compartment, you've got your, uh, your sports compartment, you've got a whole number of these boxes that you could label. And we live in these compartments, but then added to kind of the caboose or somewhere in all of these boxes, there's like a church compartment, a religious compartment, a Jesus compartment, a God compartment. And God does not abide in one of those compartments. But rather, all of those compartments, the finances, the leisure, the work, and our relationships are all under an umbrella heading that says God. So if you're going to grasp what we're teaching today, then you're going to need to lose the idea that God is just one among many things or persons in my life. Rather, God is the chief person in your life. And as we're going to see, that relationship affects all others. So last sentence in that paragraph. Consider Jesus' words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then ask yourself the question... That is the next paragraph. Is there any part of life that falls outside your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Now notice the quotation from Jesus there says, all of your heart, soul, mind, and then I've got heart, mind, soul, and and strength. Why? 
You see the footnote there? And the footnote down at the bottom says Deuteronomy 6.5. And that actually includes the word strength in this, in this list. So Matthew 22 in your New Testament is a quote from this passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. And it involves all of these areas, your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And is there any part of life that falls outside of those, of those parameters? And of course the answer is, the answer is no. And so the command is making clear that God should be at the center of everything, of all of it. And that breaks down the barriers that we erect between the spiritual and the unspiritual, between God and all the other areas of our lives that we like to keep to ourselves. Everything we do is supposed to be guided by our love for God. Every action is to be an act of devotion to him. Now, let me explain that a bit further. The footnote has Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. And it is called Deuteronomy for this reason. The name means, Deuteronomy means this, second law. Second law. It is the second giving of the law, a repetition of the law for a second time. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. The first time the law, the Ten Commandments were given, was in the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the commandments are repeated. And here's why they're repeated. Because if you were to read that fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy, you would see that the context is that God's people are finally ready after after uh, years wandering in the wilderness. They're finally ready to go into the land that God promised them. And Moses, who has led them, is saying in Deuteronomy, now as you go into this land, I'm going to repeat for you the commands that God has given us so that you do not forget your God, because that will be your tendency. And so Deuteronomy, second law, he repeats the the law in chapter 5. And then when you come to chapter 6 and and following, it's an explanation of those Ten Commandments. And the very first explanation of those Ten Commandments is given in chapter 6 and verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Now, how's that an explanation of the Ten Commandments? Here's how. Those Ten Commandments, as I told my Wednesday night class this past week, those Ten Commandments fall into two categories. First category relates to God. The second category relates to people. So you have Ten Commandments. The first four of them relate to our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10, our relationship with with others. And you remember in those first four commands, it is things like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, any idol, and bow down to it. This is all about our relationship with God. Now, those four commands are then summarized by this one command given in Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, all your soul, all of your strength. And then the other six commands, commandments 5 through 10, are summarized with another love command. And that's found in... The third book of your Bible, Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 18, 19 and verse 18, Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you all remember that Jesus was asked 2,000 years ago when he walked the earth, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God. In fact, that's the quotation we have from Matthew 22. That's Jesus saying that in answer to that question, what is the greatest command? Love the Lord your God. 
And then he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing that, he's quoting these two passages from the first part of the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. Now, I'd like to point one other thing out about this. Command, overarching command that Jesus gives. First and greatest commandment, love God. And it's this. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that our relationship with God, those first four commands, are all about things you're not to do. Do not make any graven image. Do not have any other gods before me. But Jesus says those are summarized not with negative commands, that is, not with nots, not with things you don't do, not with prohibitions. But all those things you're to avoid are summarized by something you're to do. Love the Lord your God. Positively, you do that. And if you love the Lord your God, you will have no other gods before me. And if you love the Lord your God, then you will not create any idol for yourself. And that's why Jesus says on this command, on these two commands, hang all of the law and the prophets. When he says love your neighbor as yourself, remember some of the other commands. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. If you love your neighbor positively, then you won't do those things. And so I bring that up to you for this reason. Friends, your relationship with God is not primarily about what you don't do. Your relationship with God is primarily about what you do. It's primarily about what you are pursuing. And you're to positively, and I am to positively be pursuing A love relationship with God, loving the Lord your God and then loving your neighbor as yourself, including in our marriages. Now, third paragraph under that first point, then this understanding of our relationship with God exposes us all as worshipers who have gone astray. Now, I have emphasized for you there in italics, the question isn't whether or not you will worship. The question is who or what you will worship. Every person was made to worship. And in fact, every person does worship. The question is, who or what do you worship? Now, so far, you're thinking to yourself, you know, this lesson, I'm good on this. I mean, my spouse is a mess. We all know that. But I'm, I'm good on this. You know, we're talking about idolatry and, you know, God versus idolatry. I've never had an idol I don't even know if I've even seen one. You know, I've been to antique shops. You know, maybe I've seen a Buddha statue. But I never bought one. They cost too much. But, I, but I've never set something up on my chimney and, you know, bowed down to it. So what is all this idle talk? Okay, can you move on to the next thing? Well, here's what we're going to see before we, before we leave today. That that understanding of idolatry is actually much more narrow than what the Bible teaches about idolatry. And when we say here that all of us were made for worship, and the truth is you will worship something or someone, we're going to see that idols can actually be manufactured in our hearts out of anything. And we create idols in our hearts. They're not the little statues that you buy. It's not the thing that you normally think of. So I just want you to bear that in mind, and we will see that before we end today. So, bottom of page 8, why should I worship God alone? Psalm 71 provides a number of character qualities of God that help you to answer that question. If you look at page 9, 
And two-thirds of page 9 is simply the entirety of Psalm 71. Now, I want to point this out as quickly as I can, and we'll move on. But I'm pointing it out because Psalm 71 will become part of the homework that you'll do for next week. Part of the pages in your packet are homework. And I trust as many of you as possible did the homework uh, from last week. And I encourage you, if you're going to benefit from what we're doing over these 10 weeks, to do that homework. Psalm 71 will play into some questions that you will be asked in the homework. And so here's what we're going to do as quickly as we can. On page 9 with Psalm 71, we're going to go through and we're going to circle words that relate to God's role in our lives. Words that relate to God's role in our lives. And so I've already done that. I'm going to do that quickly. And if you want to circle these as I go. But in verse 1, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. So refuge is a word to circle there. And then on the next line in verse 3, rock. Be my rock of refuge is a word to circle. And then in the next line at the end of verse 3, my fortress. So God is a refuge, a rock, and a fortress. And then verse 5, you have been my hope. You should circle the word hope. And then that same line, confidence. And then the next line, the words relied on you. Relied on you. And then on that same line toward the end, praise. And then if you go all the way down to verse 21, all the way down to verse 21, you will increase my honor and circle the word comfort. Now, here are just some words in Psalm then 71 that relate to our relationship with God as our refuge, as our rock, as our fortress, as our hope, our confidence, as the one on whom we rely, as the one that we are to praise, as the one from whom we receive comfort. Now, one other exercise to do with this, and that is we're going to underline in the Psalm the character qualities of God given here, the character qualities of God. And in verse 2, back up the top, underline righteousness. And then the next line, the word deliver. He's our deliverer. And then the verse number 5, excuse me, verse... um, Verse 8. Verse 8. That God is splendorous, splendor. At the end of verse 8. And then if you go to verse 15, that God is immeasurable. Notice it says, I know not how to relate them all. So I just summarize that with immeasurable. You can underline that. I know not how to relate them all. Verse 16, God is mighty. You see the word mighty before Acts there. And then sovereign Lord in verse 16. And down in verse 17, marvelous. In verse 18, Last line of that paragraph, powerful. That is, he's, his, his power is to be declared. In verse 19, God is unique. You see that at the end of that first line where it asks, who is like you, God? The answer is no one. He's absolutely unique. So bear with me, almost done. Verse 22, God is faithful. And also in verse 22, God is holy, the holy one of Israel. 
Now, we just went through that to say, how am I to relate with God in my life? Circle those words. And then what is God like? What are these character qualities of God? And you've underlined those. And those give you just in one psalm reasons that God is alone worthy of your worship. And that is going to relate to some of the homework that you're going to do. And so I encourage you to make reference to that when you do the homework. Now, on page nine, your first relationship, which is to be with God, affects all of your other relationships. Failure to cultivate a relationship with God automatically results in idolatrous relationships that, in turn, affect all other relationships. And here's one I want to give you, that broader definition of idolatry than just having a statue on the mantle. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those, now hear this on verse 8, those who make idols will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron and those who fear him. Small and great alike. Now, I want some principles to be drawn then out of Psalm 115. Page 10. The first principle is this. What we worship has an effect on us. That's what Psalm 115 is saying. Those who have idols will become like those idols. And so I'm saying here, what we worship has an effect on us. Now, idolatry is normally thought of as you make something, you construct something, you bow down before it. That's certainly idolatry. But the Bible uses idolatry in a much broader sense. The prophet Ezekiel says this. Ezekiel speaks of idols that we erect in our hearts. That we make idols in our hearts. Further, the word idol and idolatry has to do with worshiping someone or something other than God. And that someone or something can be any desire that I have that trumps my desire for God. Any desire for anyone or anything that trumps my desire for God. So James chapter 4. I'm going to quote for you James chapter 4. The very first verse asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So married people, have you ever had a fight or a quarrel? I know you've answered this uh, question you know, let me just stop here for a minute. Um, Sherry Fallett shook her head no when I said, have you ever had a fight or a quarrel? <laughs> now, now, lying would happen to be straight up sin, Sherry, okay? So we've all had fights and quarrels. What causes those fights and quarrels? Well, you know the answer to that right away, my idiot spouse, right? And so that's what you would expect the next phrase to say, but it doesn't say that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It says this. Don't they come from your desires that war within you? So why did this fight and quarrel, external fight and quarrel, erupt between me and Kim? I mean, there's the way I want to answer that. And then there's the right answer. 
It's because of desires that war within one or both of us. Now, remember, an, an idol is anything that you desire more than you desire God. So I've got these desires that war within my heart. And and when James chapter 4 and verse 1 asks that question, don't they emanate, don't they come from, don't they originate from these desires that war within you? I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say, don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? Because when we think of that, we think, well, I must have some evil desire, some desire for something that's really bad. No, hear this. The idol that you and I create in our hearts may be for something good. So let me give you an example. You know, I just want the house to be clean when I get home. By the way, our house is clean when I get home. But, but you know, let's. Uh, there have been days where Kim watches two little ones five days a week. She babysits. So, And I've had, you know, my day. And then I come home and I'm just looking forward to some peace and quiet. And then I come home to the disaster that is Chloe and Izzy, the two little ones that she watches. And all I'm looking forward to is getting in my recliner, but I actually can't get to my recliner because there are Chloe and Izzy toys all over the place. Okay, And I'm just looking forward to having you know a, a cup of coffee and just relaxing too, but I can't get to that. And I, I can't even get the cup of coffee because of all kinds of stuff that's going on. And so this starts to rise up with, within me. Now, what is it that I desired? I just desired some comfort. Is that an evil desire? The answer to that is no. But if that erupts into an argument between me and Kim, James 4 will still be true. That fight occurred because of your desires that battle within you. It was a desire for something good. But it became, here this, idolatrous when I wanted it too much. And how do you know that you want something, even something good too much? It's when you're willing to disobey God to get it or in the absence of having it. You know that a good desire has become idolatrous when you're willing to disobey God in order to get it or disobey God in the absence of having it. Now, in your homework this week, you're going to be asked to identify the idols of your heart. And many of those idols are for things like comfort, approval, power, intimacy, belonging, security, safety, success, admiration. None of those things are sinful in themselves. But all of them are things that lurk in the hearts of sinful people and they can become and often do become idolatrous for us when we want them too much. What we worship has an effect on us. And what I'm encouraging you to see, friends, is that you worship, you make idols, I make idols out of things that are not statues, but rather these things are desires of our hearts that have become more important to us than obeying God. So when James says that, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle, that war within you? And then he goes on to to say this in verse 4. You adulterous people. Yikes. But it says you adulterous people right in that context. By pursuing these desires, even desires for good things, you've committed spiritual adultery against God. 
The one to whom, as we saw earlier, we are to be betrothed and is our most important relationship. So what we worship has an effect on us. Top of page 10 again, B. And what we worship has an effect then on others. Now, do you remember the account from last week of the pastor and his family? That's on pages 3 and 4 of your notes from last week. Most of you don't have those notes with you. So I'm going to read that for you. And then we're going to see the rest of the story on that. So just, it's on pages 3 and 4 if you have those notes. If you don't, you can just listen as I read. This pastor says this, I could feel my blood pressure rising. With every passing moment, I was getting more and more angry. It was 2.30. My son's baseball practice was at 3. My daughter had a birthday party at 4. I had to lead a Bible study at 5. What's more, my wife was not answering her cell phone. I've been calling her every few minutes since 1, and now it's almost 2.30. She should have been home long ago. She knew what was on the schedule, and she assured me she'd be home on time. How am I going to prepare for my Bible study with all this taxiing to do? Doesn't she care that I'm juggling all this by myself? My anger mounted as I pictured her just there chatting with her friends while her cell phone set to vibrate just hummed away unnoticed in her handbag. I resigned myself to plan B. All three kids are going to come to that baseball practice. The girls are going to play in an empty part of the field. I'm going to sit in the van and work on the Bible study. Sure, there's going to be distractions. I'm going to want to watch the practice. The girls will need to be watched. They're going to get bored and start asking for things. It's not ideal, but it's going to have to do. I barked orders at the kids to get ready. There are a hundred questions. Well, where's mommy? Why do we have to go to baseball practice? Am I going to miss my party? Where are my shoes? Can we stop at the store and get a snack? Every question was a frustrating reminder. I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. Then the phone rings. When have you been trying to call me? Uh, yeah. Injecting as much sarcasm as possible into that word. I have to get Gresham to practice, Charlotte to her birthday party, and I'm not prepared for Bible study. Why haven't you answered your phone? I didn't hear it ringing in my bag. I'm so sorry. I'll be home in a few minutes. I just couldn't get away as soon as I thought I could. Instead of waiting for Kim to return and let her deliver our son to practice, I loaded the kids in the car and took them anyway. When I returned home 15 minutes later, Kim was there wondering why I hadn't waited. She retreated to a safe distance. I sat alone, staring at the kitchen table. I was more than just annoyed. I'm fuming. Beneath the anger, I was also embarrassed and ashamed. Part of me felt justified in my anger. Another part of me wondered why I'd gotten so worked up. Irritation would be understandable, but anger? And then he says, my response was out of proportion, and I knew it. I soon realized that part of my frustration stemmed from the fact that I was feeling what I was feeling was familiar, even ordinary. How often have I been angry with Kim because I felt she doesn't hasn't stopped to think about me? And how often have I had the same pouty reaction and witnessed the same destructive result? I was tired of reliving the moment, tired of having the same old argument and getting the same old result. All right. Now, that's what we saw last week. If you look on page 10 of your notes. Now, let's read what this pastor learned about himself from that ordinary moment in his marriage. My response revealed an idol in my heart. And that idol was for acceptance and approval. I wanted to do a good job with my Bible study, but I also worked hard to be liked by my wife. After all, I was taking care of the kids on a Saturday so she could enjoy her friends. Didn't I deserve some credit for that? When I perceive myself as overlooked and ignored, it feels as if all my effort is for nothing. Usually I'm good at getting others to like me. When my wife does not fall in line, I get angry. In my anger, I want to punish her for not noticing how hard I'm working for her affirmation, approval, and affection. That Saturday, when I chose acceptance as my God, I did so because I believed it would bring me joy, peace, and happiness. 
And it seemed to work, at least for a while. But over time, just as Psalm 115 predicts, I found it less and less effective and eventually found I had less of the very things I want. I didn't feel alive and free. I felt paralyzed. I didn't know what to do or say. I was trapped in my own strategy. Approval doesn't offer any solutions for anger. Idols bring death in exactly the way the psalmist describes. As I trained my eye to look for approval, I began to lose my ability to notice anything but its presence or absence. As I trained my ear to listen for the sounds of affirmation and praise, I became tone deaf to other important sounds, and even the most helpful and well-meaning criticism became unbearable. I chose an idol that I thought would bring life, but instead I found that my life became flatter and flatter, reduced to the harsh monochrome reality of experiencing only acceptance and rejection. If you're an approval junkie, that's you. And approval and affirmation may well be the idol that's ruling your heart rather than God. And in your homework, you're going to answer 30 questions that help you try to identify what the particular idol of your heart, ruling idol of your heart is. So I encourage you to do that. Bottom of page 10. We have to have then this relationship with God, a relationship that is in conflict with the relationship that we have with the idols of our heart's making. And lastly, on page 10, this relationship is more than just knowing. Jesus said, you see there, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Page 11, Jesus is saying, That we bear fruit according to what we're connected to. So in preparation for your homework now this week, ask yourself this question. What are you connected to? What things are most important to you? What do you look forward to doing? What brings you joy? What do you try to avoid at all costs? Those are the kinds of things that will be probed in your homework this week. In Galatians 5... The Bible describes the kind of fruit that Jesus says comes from being connected to me. The fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit is nine things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now let me just stop there. We're almost done. But you remember I said at the beginning that our marriages could be saved if we had at least one partner who was having an affair with someone else. If you had at least one partner, and my goodness, if you had two partners who were committed to loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, being connected to Him, the vine, so that it produced these kinds of things. You think about this. A marriage that produces this kind of fruit in the lives of that couple, is it possible for them to ever split up? Is it possible for them to ever consider divorce when they're bearing fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? When you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, that's the kind of fruit that's produced. When you're connected to the vine, that's what happens. Now, one last thing and we're done. 
Something to consider. You know, this remaining in Christ. Jesus says, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And as you think about that phrase, remaining in me, that may sound very passive to you. You know, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm on Jesus' team. So I'm remaining with him, we might think. But notice the something to consider paragraph. Remaining in Christ is not just spending time with him, but also obeying his instructions. When we choose not to obey, we sin, and sin separates us from the vine. Therefore, worship is more than just knowing something. It requires doing something. You can be certain that in marriage, you will often do the right thing before you realize there's any benefit to it. Fruit doesn't grow overnight, and sometimes you don't really understand until you actually try it. Sometimes we don't understand as much as we think we do until we actually take action. Growing in your marriage and in your relationship with God works the same way. You need to be willing to take action in order to change, even to understand what you need to learn. Now, in you, when you do your homework, it will help you to identify the idols that rule your hearts, and then it will identify changes that you need to make. And so I'm preparing you for that. Because rather than asking yourself, what is this going to get me? What benefit is this going to achieve for me? I'm encouraging you to obey what God has to say. Make those changes. And then those benefits, that fruit will follow. Let's ask God to help us then this week in our relationships, in our homework, and bring us back together next week. Father, thank you for the second session and the opportunity to consider the most important relationship that every human being has been given, our relationship with our Creator, our God, and our Savior. Lord, we have each, all of us, gone astray because we seek to be our own God. We do it in ways that are often unconscious. We develop idols in our hearts that become more important to us than cultivating our relationship with you, displaying you in our relationship with others obeying you in all we do. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to grant to each person participating in this class an openness, a transparency, and an honesty to see the idols that have been erected in our hearts. Help us this week to do the homework so that we can see what particular idol or idols have been gripping us and causing us difficulty in our relationships, especially in our marriages. Lord, I pray that every person in every couple represented here will fully participate in that. But Lord, if you are pleased to allow just one person to follow you, then that will transform marriages. Because you have someone who is more interested in obeying you than finding their fulfillment in someone else. And so Lord, I pray that you will help us this week and in the weeks to come to move toward intimacy in our marriages because we're moving toward intimacy with you. We ask you to grant us safety this week and to bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.